Welcome to Fast Asleep. Whether you're here to embark on a beautiful night's sleep or just to listen to an exceptional story, it's nice to have you with us. Cleopatra, cat on a hot tin roof. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? These are, oh, not the works of the Elizabeth Taylor who penned this episode's story. Our Elizabeth Taylor was an English novelist and short story writer, born in 1912, and considered one of the most underrated of the 20th century. She was known for her nuances of everyday life and situations. All right, so let's tuck in and enjoy one of those situations right now with a red letter day. The hedgerow was beaded with silver. In the English November fog, the leaves dripped with deadly intensity, as if each falling drop were a drop of acid. Through the mist, cabs came suddenly face to face with one another, passing and repassing between station and school. Backing into the hedges, twigs, withered berries striking the windows, the drivers leaned out to exchange remarks incomprehensible to their passengers who felt oddly at their mercy. Town parents especially shrank from this malevolent landscape. The wastes of rotting cabbages, flint cottages with rakish privies, rubbish heaps, gray napkins drooping on clotheslines, soil like plum cake, even turning in at the rather superior school gates. They were dismayed by the mossy stone and the smell of fungus. Then, as the building itself came into view, they could see Matron standing at the top of the steps, fantastically white, shaming nature. Her hands laid affectionately upon the shoulders of such boys as could not resist her. The weather was put in its place. The day would take its course. She had an air of professional baname, as if she shared in the gaiety of the occasion, but each term, visiting day to her, well, it was like Christmas day to a clergyman, a great climax of work and preparation. Tori was one of the last to get a cab, having no man to exert authority for her. She must merely take her turn and stand on the slimy pavement waiting for a car to come back to the station empty. She stamped her feet, feeling the damp creeping through her shoes. When she left home, she had thought herself suitably dressed. Even for such an early hour, her hat was surely plain enough. One after another, she had tried on every one she owned and had come out in the end leaving hats all over the bed so that it resembled a new grave 
with its mound of wreathed flowers. But the other mothers had hats of undreamed of austerity. And the most sensible of Tories' shoes could not withstand the insidious damp. One other woman was on her own. Tory eyed her with distaste. Her sons, for surely there were more than one, she looked as if she'd had what is often called a teeming womb, like a woman symbolizing maternity in a pageant. Her many sons would never feel the lack of a father, as Tory's one boy was bound to, for she was large enough oh, to be both father and mother to them. Yes, Tory thought. She would have them out on the lawn and bowl at them by the hour, would coach them in mathematics, oil their bats, dub their boots, tan their backsides. Tory was working herself up into a hatred of this woman who seemed to be all that she herself was not, with only one love affair in her life, or rather one mating. She was probably, she has probably eaten her husband now that her childbearing days are over, Tori thought. He would never have dared to ask for a divorce, as mine did. The woman still carried her mother's bag, the vast thing that, full of diapers, bibs, bottles of orange juice, accompanies babies out to tea. Tori wondered what was in it now. Sensible things, a Bradshaw, a train timetable, ration books, a bag of biscuits, large clean handkerchiefs, a tablet of soap, and aspirins. A jolly manner. I love young people. I feed on them, Tori thought spitefully. The furs on the woman's shoulders made her even larger. They clasped paws across her great authoritative back, like hands across the ocean. Oof. Tori lifted her muff to hide her smile. Nervous dread made her feel fretful and vicious. Also, in her life, all was frail, precarious, emotions fleeting, relationships fragmentary. Her life with her husband had suddenly loosened and dissolved. Her love for her son was painful, shadowed by guilt, the guilt of having nothing solid to offer. Of having grown up and forgotten, of adventuring still away from her child, of not being able to resist those emotional adventures, the tenuous, 
grasping after life. I am not, she thought, watching Mrs. Hay Hardy, whose name she was soon to learn but did not know yet, rearranging her furs on her shoulders. I am not a great feather bed of oblivion. Between Edward and me, there is no premise of love, none at all, nothing taken for granted, as between most sons and mothers, but all tentative and agonized. We are indeed amateurs, both of us. No tradition behind us, no gift for the job. All we achieve is too hard to come by. We try too piteously to please one another, and if we do, feel frightened by the miracle of it. I do indeed love him above all others, above all others, but not exclusively. Here, a taxi swerved against the station curb and palpitated as she stepped forward quickly, triumphantly, before Mrs. Hay Hardy could do so and settled herself in the back seat. Could we share? Mrs. Hay Hardy asked, her voice confident, melodious, and one foot definitely on the running board. Tori smiled and moved over much farther than was necessary, as if such a teeming womb could scarcely be accommodated on the seat beside her. Shifting her furs on her shoulders, settling herself, Mrs. Hay Hardy glanced out through the filming windows, undaunted by the weather, which she said would clear, would lift. Oh, she was confident that it would lift by midday. Well, one has to get up so early, it seems midday now, Tori complained. But Mrs. Hay Hardy explained that she had not risen until six, so naturally it still seemed only eleven to her as it was. She will share the fare down to the last penny, Tori thought. There will be a loud and forthright woman's argument. She will count out coppers and make a fuss. This did happen. At the top of the steps, Matron still waited with the three Hay Hardy boys grouped about her and Edward, who blushed and whitened alternately with terrible excitement, a little to one side. Yes, he had grown, Tori thought, and his shorts were high above his roughened knees. He looked more than eleven, but his complexion was peachy and downy still, like a younger child's, and his long lashes threw shadows across his eyes. As an only son, he had not the same claim to matron's attention as the Hay Hardys and she had chosen them to encircle. Sensing this, perhaps, Edward stood apart. To meet this wonderful customer, this profitable womb, the headmaster's wife herself came into the hall, 
her husband had sent her, instructing her with deft cynicism from behind his detective novel. He himself, of course, was one of those gods who rarely descend, except, like Zeus, in a very private capacity. This is the moment I marked off on the calendar, Edward thought. Here it is. Every night, he and the other boys had thrown one of their pebbles out of their window to mark a day gone. The little stones had dropped back onto the gravel under the window, quite lost, untraceable, the days of their lives. As smooth as minnows were Mrs. Lancaster's phrases of welcome. She had soothed so many mothers, mothered so many boys. Her words swam all one way in unison, but her heart never moved. Matron, on the other hand, was always nervous. The results of her work were so much on the surface, so easily checked. The rest of the staff could hide their inefficiency or shift their responsibility. She could not. If Mrs. Hay Hardy cried, as she did today, dear boy, your teeth, to her firstborn, it was matron's work, she criticized, and matron flushed. And Mrs. Lancaster flushed for matron, and Derek Hay Hardy flushed for his mother. Well, perhaps I'm not a born mother, Tori thought, going down the steps with Edward. They would walk back to town and have lunch at the Crown, she said to him. Edward pressed her arm as a taxi, bulging with Hay Hardy's, went away down the drive. Oh, do you mean you wanted to go with them? Tori asked. They will get there long before us, she thought, and they will have eaten everything. No, Edward said. Don't you like them? No. Oh, but why? Uh, they don't like me. Unbearable news for any mother, for surely all the world loves one's child, one's only child. Doubt set in, a little nagging toothache of doubt. You are happy, she wanted to ask. I've looked forward so much to this, she said instead. So much. He stared ahead. All around the gateposts, drops of moisture fell from one leaf to another, and the stone griffins were hunched up in misery. But I imagined it being a different day, Tori added quite different. Oh, it'll be nice to get something to eat, Edward said. They walked down the road toward the crown in silence, as if they could not make any progress until they had reached that point. You are warm enough at night, Tori asked when at last they were sitting in the hotel dining room. Yes, he said absently, and then bringing himself back to the earlier distant politeness added stifling hot stifling oh but surely you have plenty of fresh air 
She could feel her questions sliding off him. I do, he said reassuringly. My bed's just under the window, perishing. I have to keep my head under the bedclothes or I get earache. I am asking for all of this, she thought. When the waiter brought her pink gin, she drank it quickly, conscious that uh, Mrs. Hay Hardy across the hotel dining room was pouring out a nice glass of water for herself and was so full of jokes that Tori felt she had perhaps brought a collection of them along with her in her shopping bag. Laughter ran around and around the Hay Hardy's table above their glasses of water. Edward turned once, and she glimpsed the faintest quiver under one eye and an answering quiver on the middle Hay Hardy's face. She felt exasperated. Cold had settled in her. Her mouth, her heart too, felt stiff. Well, what would you like to do after lunch? She asked. Uh, we could look around the shops, Edward said, nibbling away at his bread, as if to keep hunger at arm's length. The shops were in the marketplace. At the drapers, the hats were steadily coming around into fashion again. I could astonish everyone with one of these, Tori thought, setting her own hat right by her reflection in the window. Bales of cotton apron print rose on both sides. A wax-faced boy wore a stiff suit, its price ticket dangling from his yellow, broken fingers. His painted blue eyes turned mildly upon the street. Edward gave him a look of contempt and went to the shop door, breathing on the glass, peering in through a little space among suspended bibs and jabbits, lace collars, and parlor-made caps. He watched the cages flying overhead between the cashier and the counter. The Hay Hardy streamed by, heading for the open country. Most minutely, Tori and Edward examined the windows of the draper's shop, the bicycle shop, the family grocers. There was nothing to say. They were just reading the postcards in the newsagent's window when Edward's best friend greeted them. His father, a clergyman, snatched off his hat and clapped it to his chest at the sight of Tori. When she turned back to the postcards, ooh, she could see how unsuitable they were. Jokes about bloomers, about twins, a great seaside world of fat men in striped bathing suits. Enormous women trotted down to the sea's edge while crabs humorously nipped their behinds. Farcical situations arose over bathing machines and little boys had trouble with their water. Ooh, she blushed. The afternoon seemed to give a little sigh, stirred itself and shook down a spattering of rain over the pavements. Beyond the market square, the countryside, which had absorbed the Hay Hardys, 
lowered at them. Is there anything you want? Tori asked desperately, coveting the warm interiors of the shops. I, I could do with a new puncture outfit for my bike, Edward said. They went back to the bicycle shop. Oh my God, it's only three o'clock, Tori thought in despair as she glanced secretly under her glove at her watch. The museum room at the Guild Hall was not gay, but at least there were Roman remains, oh, a few instruments of torture, and half of a mammoth's jawbone. Tori sat down on a seat among all the broken terracotta and took out a cigarette. Oh, no smoking, please, the attendant said, coming out from behind a case of stuffed deer. Oh, please, Tori begged. She sat primly on the chair, her feet together, and when she looked up at him, her violet eyes flashed with tears. Edward wandered away. The attendant struck a match for her, and his hand curving around it trembled. It's the insurance, he apologized. I'll, I'll have this later if I may, he said when she offered him a cigarette, and he put it very carefully in his breast pocket, as if it were a lock of her hair. Do you have to stay here all day long with these dull little broken jugs and things? She asked, looking about. He forgave her at once for belittling his life's work only pointing out his pride, the fine mosaic on the wall. Oh, but floors should be lying down, she said naively, without innocence. Edward came tiptoeing back. You see that delightful floor hanging up there, she said to him. This gentleman will tell you all about it. My son adores Greek mythology, she explained to the attendant. Your son, he repeated, affecting gallant disbelief, his glance stripping 10 or 15 years from her. And then, well, this happens to be a Byzantine mosaic, he said, and looked reproachfully at it for not being what it could not be. Edward listened grudgingly. His mother had forced him into similar situations at other times in the armory of the Tower of London and once at Kew, English Botanical Gardens. It was as if she kindled in men a flicker of interest and admiration that her son must keep fanned, for she would not. Boredom drew her away again. Yet her charm must still hold sway. So now, Edward listened crossly to the story of the Byzantine mosaic as last holidays he had minutely observed the chasing on Henry VIII's breastplate and in utter desperation the holidays before had watched curlews, birds, through field glasses 
Edward is so very keen on birds for the whole of a hot day while Tory dozed elegantly in the heather. Ordinary days perhaps are better, Edward thought. Sinking down through him were the leaves of despair, which must at all costs be hidden from his mother. He glanced up at every clock they passed and wondered about his friends. Alone with his mother, he felt unsafe, wounded and wounding. And oppressed by responsibility, he saw himself in relation to the outside world. Thoughts of the future and even, as they stood in the church porch to shelter from another little gust of rain, even of death, seemed to brush against him, a light on him, and they disturbed him, as they would not do if he were at school, anonymous and safe. Tory sat down on a seat and read a notice about missionaries chafing her hands inside her muff while all her bracelets jingled softly. Flapping, black in his cassock, a clergyman came hurrying through the graveyard between the dripping umbrella trees. Edwards stepped guiltily off the porch as if he'd been trespassing. Oh, good afternoon, the vicar said. Good afternoon, Tori replied. She looked up from blowing the fur of her muff into divisions and her smile broke warmly, beautifully over the dark afternoon. And then the weather, <laughs> they both began ruefully, broke off <laughs> and hesitated and then laughed at one another. It was wonderful. Now they would soon be saying goodbye. Oh, it was over. The day they had longed for was almost over. The polite little tea among the chintz and the wheel-back chairs of the copper kettle. Tory, frosty and imperious with the waitresses, and once Edward beginning, uh, father, at which she looked up sharply before she could gather together the careful indifference she always assumed at this name, Edward faltered. Um, he sent me a parcel. Oh, how nice, said Tori, laying ice all over his heart. She called the waitress. Her cup was cracked. She could not drink tea from riveted china, however prettily it was painted. The waitress went sulkily away. All around them sat other small boys with their parents. Tori's bracelets tinkled as she clasped her hands tightly together and leaned forward. And how is your father's wife? She asked brightly, indifferently. They took a taxi back to the school. Sullenly, the day withdrew. As they turned in at the gates, they could see lights in the ground floor windows. She thought of going back in the train.
of a lonely evening. Hmm. She would take a drink up to her bedroom and sip it while she did her hair, the gas fire roaring in its white ribs. Edward's photograph beside her bed. Oh, the hay hardies were unloading at the foot of the school steps. Flushed from their country walk and all their laughter, they seemed to swarm and shout. Edward got out of the taxi and stood looking up at Tory, his new puncture outfit clasped tightly in his hand, uncertainly, awaiting a cue from her. He tried to begin his goodbye, warm, musky-scented, softly rustling with the sound of her bracelets, the touch of her fur. She leaned and kissed him. So lovely, darling, she murmured. She had no cue to give him. Mrs. Hay Hardy had gone into school to have a word with matron, so Tori must find her own way of saying farewell. Ah, oh, they smiled gaily as if they were greeting one another. Well, um, I'll see you soon, she said. Yeah, see you soon. Uh, goodbye then, darling. Goodbye, said Edward. She slammed the door and as the taxi moved off, leaned toward the window and waved. He stood there uncertainly, waving back radiant with relief. Then, as she disappeared around the curve of the drive, he ran quickly up the steps to find his friends and safety. Thanks for listening, everybody.